the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks for listening. Today we have the third in a three-part series that Matt Bates is doing with various scholars talking about the language of faith in the New Testament. And today we have as our guest Jeanette Hagen-Pfeiffer, and she's going to be talking about her book, Faith as Participation. So um, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes on faith in the New Testament, you can go back and look for those in your feed. And while you're there, while you're looking back through your feed, your whatever um, podcast app that you use probably has somewhere to give a rating to OnScript, and we'd appreciate if you could do that. I know we bug you about it, but it really does make a difference. So thanks for doing that. Thanks also to Ed Hatkey for producing the episodes. You know, we've upped the number of episodes we produce each month. I don't know if you've noticed, um, we used to just do two a month, then we went to three a month, and we're kind of teetering on three to four a month depending on how many weeks there are. So that's an increased workload for Ed, and he's been so gracious in um, producing these episodes. So a huge thanks to Ed. Thanks also to Rebecca Terhune for uh, all the help with um, marketing and media and communications. She's just excellent at that. So thank you, Rebecca. Um, Also, thanks to those who have supported the podcast through monthly donations. If you'd like to give monthly, Hey, we're not going to stop you. You can go over to onscript.study forward slash donate and become a monthly supporter. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. In case the thematic coherence isn't obvious, I've been doing a mini-series on faith in the New Testament for OnScript. Previously, we've had conversations with David Downs and Benjamin Lapinga about the faithfulness of the risen Christ. Then it was Nijay Gupta with his Paul in the Language of Faith. Today we are continuing the dialogue by bringing a new voice to the table, Jeanette Hagen-Pfeiffer, author of the recent monograph, Faith as Participation, an Exegetical Study of Some Key Pauline Texts, published by Morsey Beck in 2019. Welcome to OnScript, Jeanette. Thank you. Now, um, Jeanette, uh, you're the final guest for this faith mini-series, uh, but the sequencing is a bit backward uh, because your monograph actually came out before the other ones did. Uh, as uh, Downs and Lapinga, I think, came out in November of 2019, and Nijay's uh, book is just not even quite out yet. It will be out, I think, momentarily. Um, but yours published, was it this summer, I think, or summer of 2019? May of 2019. May of 2019. So, uh, so anyway, we're kind of doing things in reverse a little bit, uh, and uh, and even more so, your your this was the published version of your dissertation. So, as is the case with all of these situations, um, this is probably a, re- a revised version of your dissertation, and you can only revise so much, right? right? Uh, and so, a lot of this re- is research that you completed in 2016. Yes. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Uh, Obviously, it's an exciting project. There's lots of conversation in the academy happening about faith and reassessing faith, rethinking faith, uh, and whatnot. So I was curious, just to start things off, how how did you first get interested in studying faith for a dissertation project in the first place? 
Well, I love answering that question because when I started the process of thinking through what I was going to work on for my PhD, uh, I became interested in the topic of participation in Christ, actually, initially, and began researching that with the intention of submitting a proposal. I did submit a proposal, actually, um, to write on participation in Christ. But one of the um, frustrating experiences I had in doing that research, um, aside from just the um, the ambiguity <laughs> that often surrounds that conversation, was this uh, fairly consistent um, trend that I noticed to bifurcate the theme of participation in Christ with justification by faith. And so as I kept running, bumping into this, you know, um, and beginning with Vreda and Schweitzer, um, began to just sense, I think this is a, a false dichotomy being set up here that Paul really sees these two doctrines, um, closely interrelated, closely linked. And I think actually the hermeneutical key to this um, conundrum is understanding rightly what Paul means by faith. Mm. And um, in more recent discussions, uh, I think on the apocalyptic Paul, we see that um, the issue of agency uh, plays into, or actually rather downplays uh, the significance of the role of human faith. And so um, I just began to kind of look at some of the um, some of the current trends in Pauline scholarship and some of the seemingly major conundrums, <laughs> um, some of the, the looming um, Pauline debates about what is the question of what is the center of Paul's theology? Is it justification by faith um, propounded by Reformation theologians, or is it participation or union with Christ. Um, so that was one, uh, one debate kind of in the background of my quest. Um, then of course you can't escape the, um, the wonderful Pistis Christi <laughs> debate, um, that one of my, uh, professors when I was doing my master's described as a, a black hole <laughs> mm-hmm. of scholarship. Um, and then um, more recently, especially uh, discussions about the interplay between divine and human agency, and that especially arise out of um, apocalyptic interpretation of Paul, I think. And so, um, so I, I shifted my focus in, uh, in my research and decided I'm just going to uh, try to address the simple question of what does Paul actually be, mean by faith? Because I think underlying... Um, each of these other debates is a um, are various caricatures of what faith means, and um, so if we can get a clear understanding exegetically, uh, and also uh, um, I decided let's take the discussion outside of uh, Romans and Galatians, the common go-to letters for looking at faith in Paul, specifically because that is wrapped up more in the discussion of justification by faith. Let's see what he has to say about faith in some of his other letters. Um, so, so I looked at um, 1 Thessalonians and 1 and 2 Corinthians, which um, seemed pretty novel. And now I see, you know, Nijay, um, since I've done this, has, has looked at those chapters as well. But at the time that I began in 2012, um, 
there wasn't much written on faith uh, in in those other letters. So that's kind of yeah. how I came into um, this question. Well, it's it's certainly an ambitious dissertation topic, and so I ask it's a quick clarifying question. Did you switch midstream? You came in doing participation, and then midstream switched, or was it? Did you already? I switched very early, actually, okay. in my mm-hmm. first month in Durham. So okay. I, yeah, I submitted that's really a proposal yeah. and had a um, had that proposal accepted. Really, to more address the one issue of. Um, Participation in Christ and justification by faith, the, cent- the question of the center of Paul's theology. But um, yeah, I think it was in the first month of um, reading, meeting with uh, John Barclay, who is my um, doctoral supervisor. And and I, I can remember vividly the conversation in which I said, I think the problem is a misunderstanding of faith. <laughs> I think that faith is just as much an important part of participation as it is justification. And yet um, we see justification by faith as a tagline, um, participation in Christ as the others, but it's got to be participation by faith in Christ. Well, that's um, certainly a, a kind of an academic, you know, kind of story for uh, how this, you know, arose for you. I'd yeah. be curious to hear if there's more life story behind it as well. Yeah. But let me let me give um, uh, listeners a little bit of your bio here uh, to get a better sense of who you are, and maybe some questions will arise from that. Um, Jeanette Hagen-Pfeiffer has served in a variety of ministry capacities, including evangelistic and humanitarian work with orphans in the former Soviet Union, helping to facilitate for theological and ministry training around the world and serving in a church plant in Whittier, California. She completed her PhD study under John Barclay at Durham. Uh, Her research focused on the book that we are about to read, and she is the author of a number of papers and has been involved in a variety of projects. Um, So I was curious, uh, I think probably some others are, and immediately grabbed my attention, former Soviet Union. um, Tell, you got to tell us a story of some kind uh, about your experience. Oh, thanks for asking, because that occupies a huge part of my heart. And to go back to kind of your segue there, um, faith is not just an academic concern of mine. Um, as I know, it's not for you um, as well. I And I can, um, I mean, it's just such an important word for Christians, isn't it? And Um, used in so many different ways, but uh, growing up, um, learning what it meant to exercise faith. And um, I can, I can think of specific scripture verses that I memorized that um, became important in my own um, development of, of faith as a Christian. But specifically, um, you asked about uh, my work in the former Soviet Union. And I say that because I did work in Ukraine primarily, um, but mm-hmm. also in Russia and even a tiny little country in Moldova, um, which was fun. Uh, I got involved in ministry in that part of the world when I was a college student. So I had sensed a calling to ministry from the time I was pretty young, um, 12 or 13. And so I having gone to public schools um, most of my life, when it came time to go to uh, college, I wanted to go to a Christian university thinking that I wanted preparation for ministry in some capacity. So um, I got involved in a short-term missions program while a student in Ukraine working in an orphanage. 
and spent a month, um, I guess that was the summer of my junior year, uh, uh, it was a ministry called Little Lambs, and um, kind of cute, <laughs> um, but we just spent a month putting on a summer camp for the kids in Ukraine, and we were working in state-run orphanages, um, specifically to be able to be evangelistic and um, share the gospel and um, hope of new life um, with these kids. And um, and man, I tell you, my heart broke uh, that summer, um, just seeing and witnessing firsthand and building relationships with children who had suffered more than is imaginable for young lives like that. And the kids in the orphanages are not always true orphans in the sense that they don't have parents, but sometimes they're living in the orphanages because their um, parents are unfit for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. to care for them or, or um, extended family. So alcoholism is a huge problem. Um, and so a lot of them are there because of abuse taken away. So, so yeah, I, um, I began involved as a college student and then continued to work with them after college for several years. And I went to work full time for that organization, which was really such a, a life changing experience for me. And so foundational, I think, to everything that I do now. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful. And as I'm now a college professor, um, I try to encourage my students who are Bible majors to get some just real hands-on ministry experience before pursuing an academic track and get some, get some real life experience working with people and especially, um, those who are, um, oppressed in various Mm -hmm. ways. Um, and, and so, you know, this question of faith is, is very relevant to, to what I have done over there and that I can remember vividly just the own soul searching that I went through as I, was proclaiming something, um, proclaiming a hope uh, in a heavenly father, proclaiming a hope uh, and a faith and a trust in a God who um, could see these kids through their difficult life circumstances and really pressing uh, myself to to go deeper in my own faith and, and existential trust in <laughs> um, the goodness and the care of God. Well, that's really beautiful. And um, yeah, I think that there's no doubt that um, your previous ministry experiences enriches your students' lives now. Um, and I, I think I forgot when I was doing your bio, somehow I, I left it off as it was toward the bottom, um, that you're now a professor at Biola. Uh, <laughs> and uh, should have mentioned that a really, really important de- additional detail. So how about um, onward to your book? Um, let's uh, let's dive in a little bit here. And you begin, um, as most projects do, with an assessment of scholarship and uh, looking at um, some past thinkers on the topic of faith. Uh, uh, and uh, you, ch- you chose to focus on uh, Martin Luther, Adolf Schleider, uh, Rudolf Bobon, Fritz Neugebauer, and Teresa Morgan. Uh, I, th- I found it a somewhat curious mix, not a problematic one in any kind of way. But, um, you know, obviously any study of the history of, of the question can't be infinitely long. You have to choose your conversation partners uh, wisely. So um, out of that mix, who did you feel like you learned the most from? That's a really good question. So, um, definitely not Neugebauer. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Reading through um, his German um, text, 
in Christus was was challenging to say the least, um, but interesting uh, and and worthwhile. I would say. Um, Adolf Schlatter as well, we're trudging through the German. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the two that stand out to me, um, I mean, Martin Luther, I do, um, as controversial as he is, uh, I do love uh, Martin Luther, his writing, and um, he's just got some, some phrases that I think are as gems to, to us in thinking about what faith is. And he even refers to faith as a gem, you know, um, yeah. the prongs, which kind of enclose that gem of Christ. And it's yeah. um, my own summary of what he said. <laughs> but yeah. um, but Teresa Morgan was a really good read, too. The interesting thing is, again, as I started in 2012, I wasn't aware of anyone else uh, working on faith at the time. And then just as I had finished my um, manuscript <laughs> in 2015, um, out comes this huge monograph. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. so um, <laughs> that, the hazards of dissertation writing is yeah. uh, you never know who's going to be working on your project simultaneously, and there's some anxiety around that. Oh, you know, as you're trying to get it done, and you know, especially novel <laughs> portions of what you're doing, you're hoping. You know, other people aren't going to be using those ideas, but nevertheless, you don't want to be territorial. You want to be collegial. And mm-hmm. yeah, it can be tricky to, to navigate all that. But um, yeah, okay. Uh, it's interesting. Um, Nietzsche answered the same. Like Martin Luther was the most influential for him mm-hmm. uh, as well. Um, so that's a, maybe an exhortation to all of us to get back mm-hmm. into uh, reading some Martin Luther um, as uh, Nietzsche had actually read his uh, commentary on Galatians uh, and mm-hmm. worked through the whole thing. I've, I've read some Luther, of course. Uh, but I've tended to read mostly stuff in, you know, kind of Luther summary handbooks, you know, mm-hmm. as there are, you know, there, it's all Luther, but it's, you know, his introduction to the New Testament or his introduction to the, you know, the, uh, you know, to the, the commentary in Romans or whatever it might be, you know, um, where there'll, there'll be stuff that Luther penned. Uh, but I haven't ever sat down with a whole Luther commentary, I have to say, and just plowed through it. Yeah, uh, I probably should. It definitely, it definitely was a valuable experience. And I think, I think there's a lot of um, misconstruals of, of Lutheran theology for that precise reason. I think a lot of people have relied on, on summaries without really digging in to understand um, the you know the full interplay that for for Luther as well faith is very you know, we'll probably get into that a little bit but faith is very participatory you know and um, sure and faith is not as much as he's the you know not work we're not saved by works um, it's you know he he doesn't see faith as independent of works and he he makes that clear as he does his own um, exposition of Galatians. Well, as part of your project, you also covered the history of scholarship on the Center of Pauline Theology, the Pistis Christu debate, offered some reflections on how to model divine and human agency, and some gave some sort of tentative, uh, at least first suggestions regarding faith and participation. It's obviously the, what your book is all about, faith and participation. Um, so I was kind of curious if you could at least in, give us an initial starting place on uh, as it may unfold more as the interview progresses. Um, but w- at least as you begin uh, your project, um, what do you mean by participation? It's obviously, a, um, as you said, a somewhat nebulous category. It is. Uh, I love how E.P. Sanders uh, spends his, um, you know, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, his section on Paul, uh, clarifying that participation is the is the center of his theology, but nobody really knows what that means. <laughs> yeah. um, so, when I use um, 
participatory faith, so participation in the context of faith, and thinking of a couple things primarily. Um, I see faith, uh, participatory faith, um, as closely connected with um, many of uh, Paul's uh, reflections on sharing in the dying and rising of Christ. Um, I I'm keenly aware of who I'm speaking to as well right now, and um, I do want to go back and, and think through enthronement a bit more. I think you've um, highlighted something really important, but again, uh, the stage of, of work this represents. Um, I speak mostly of just that that dynamic, the Christ event of um, dying and rising. Resurrection is hugely important. I think that many times people are focused on, um, you know, the the um, the crucifixion, and I think the two are um, inextricably connected. But um, so so sharing in that dynamic. So Galatians two twenty stands out. You know, I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live by faith. Um, I, I live by faith in the Son of God. Um, there is the objective genitive. <laughs> live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So um, I think that's one of the clearest statements of um, participatory faith that we see in Paul's writings. Um, but I, I see it also as... Um, an identification. So it's, it's sharing in that and, um, closely related to that is identifying with that so that Paul can talk about, um, uh, use language of boasting, um, like in first Corinthians and second Corinthians, um, kalka'omai is a frequently, um, used verb, um, where Paul renounces any other, um, forms of boasting, but in Christ alone, in Christ crucified, we see at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1 to the uh, kind of bookend of the resurrection there at chapter 15, um, where he's he's boasting in the resurrection of Christ. So identification uh, with him and him alone. So one of the, you know, um, and I think you, you touch on this later in the the book, one of the things that can be confusing about this is, um, is this a mere metaphor or is there something more And what, how do we classify what is the more of the participation? I think you want to say that it's not just a metaphor. Yeah. Um, can you press into the metaphysics further or, or I, I'm, I, and I'm, I need help too. I'm not like yeah. seeing if you can give me words so I can do it better. Um, it, it, would you want to say that it's not mere metaphor, that it's something more? And how would you classify it? Sure. Well, I would want to qualify anything I say that I'm not a philosopher. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, metaphysics is not my area of specialty, but I do want to say that it's more than a metaphor. Um, you know, again, I, I appeal to Second Corinthians, um, where Paul really, he's not just speaking like this, this feels something like what Christ experienced, you know, on the cross and resurrection. He seems to really be identifying, um, with Christ's death and resurrection. He's, um, carrying about in the body, the death of Jesus and Mm -hmm. the resurrection of Jesus, he says. So there is something, um, 
deeper going on. Well, I liked what you did toward the very end of the book um, where you connected the new creation language to um, the, the language of Energeo in, in Galatians 5, 6. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact parallel, but you, you had the parallel between, Gala- I think it was Galatians 5, 6 and, um, and uh, Galatians 6, 15, yes. where they showed the new creation language. So um, I wonder, does, does that help us? You, you seem like you wanted to mostly, um, you wanted to say that that language is mostly anthropological without denying a cosmological dimension to it, if, I, if I'm reading you right. Is that yes. fair? Yes, that's fair. Um, does that, I, I'm just, as I'm trying to wrap my brain around, like, what you've achieved and, and where, yeah, where, where this participation lies, um, is that new creation language like the strongest metaphysical language we can use then that would be scripturally loaded? Um, I think so. And again, if we're, we're being true to the um, to Paul's language, I think new creation probably is the strongest. Um, I mean, and I guess, too, I think Galatians 2.20, that the language of, cruci- you know, co-crucifixion. Um, yeah symbolizes that as well or represents that I should say I think um I use words like um human you know the the human identity being reconstituted um and even revivified like we become you know I think we have to be really careful when we talk about what co-crucifixion means and and how how we interact with this question of how divine and human agency relate um but it's, I try to make it very clear that the human is not like obliterated in some sense, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. rather reconstituted, um, revivified, um, given new life um, in order to um, now live um, in, uh, in righteousness, now live in the good works, um, able to, to do the good works that, that Christians are called to. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I know that does. Um, and um, kind of, I, I want to um, jump over to a, a question kind of on your method, as I think your method is important, obviously, and your, your section on method is quite short. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me first start by letting you describe your own method, and then um, and then maybe I'll piggyback on that and, and speak about what I saw as distinct and helpful in, as part of your method. But yeah, go ahead. Why don't you speak to, like, what was your method in the project? and um, And then maybe I'll piggyback on that. Sure. So I think this is, this is unique from some of the other approaches that I see in handling faith, even some of the more recent um, monographs on faith that have come out since um, I finished my book. But um, I really tried to take a kind of conceptual domain approach to um, studying faith. So mine is not as much a word study on pistis as it is trying to um, grasp the kind of concept domain in which pistis lies. Um, so in the idea, in the, in the domain of, of trust relationships primarily. And so then um, I look at other conceptual cognates um, mm-hmm. Paul uses to try and help elucidate then what does Paul mean by pistis? What does Paul mean by what we usually understand as faith? Um, so that's why I think um, I look at other metaphors. I look at other uh, verbs and nouns, and um, and its um, related cognates. Uh, the metaphor of standing in Christ is used mm-hmm. a lot of times, and and interchangeably, standing in Christ, standing in faith. Um, we see both of those uh, examples used in the Corinthian and Thessalonian correspondence. Um, 
But that was one of the main approaches. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, um, was seeking to move outside of the more contested letters of Romans and Galatians to get hopefully a, a purer sense of just what, what does faith um, mean in um, Paul's other letters and cannot shed some light in some of these sticky translation issues that have been written on over and over. <laughs> Yeah, no. I, that the way you summarized it was um, it's it's good good that I was tracking with that was sort of what I thought you were up to. As I would say, your main methodological strategy that would make your book different from other people's is especially by looking at other words that are related to pistis, like you know the word for persuasion, patho, mm-hmm. right? Um, would be a, a word group that's obviously that a lot of people have seen. Like this is closely connected to Paul's pistis mm-hmm. language and pistuo language, but um, sometimes you get studies of that, sometimes not, right? Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, you do. Um, Maybe a more thorough, um, a more thoroughgoing look at some of those related terms and um, what they might teach us about pistis. And so I think that's that's helpful and commendable. Do you think um, what what sort of rewards and risks attend that? I guess is um, would be maybe um, especially I guess we thought about the rewards or maybe somewhat obvious. But like, are there risks that attend that method? Um, and if so, how do you did you seek to safeguard against them? Do you anything come to mind? I guess the risk, the the chief risk is (laughs) incorrectly associating something that maybe, um, you know, Paul wouldn't have seen within that conceptual domain. Um, Mm -hmm. So safeguarding against that is um, on one level, reading widely and seeing how other people see these connections. um, Sure. You know, which the patho connection is is some something that not many have um, commented on, but Boltman appeals to that um, mm-hmm. that it's a close um, it's closely connected to pistis, and um, so yeah, just um, being able to exegetically defend it <laughs> is yeah. important, so, which is what I tried to do. <laughs> Yes, of course. Yeah, and your your work does have a lot of um, close reading of texts, and so yeah, that's to be appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Maybe the obvious hazard would be that it, it's sometimes easy whenever you're sliding categories together to say like, well, um, if in this one passage we say that like um, faith, you know, is equivalent to logos or something like that, then we could say whatever Paul says about logos, we could then say about faith or sliding things together in those ways would be a danger, right, um, in your project. So, um, yeah, obviously you're trying to safeguard against that in what you do. Yeah, um, so anyway, yeah, it's good to just be reflective about just... method. I don't know have you, if you've had a chance to read Downs and Lapinga yet at all. Have you had a chance? It's just out, so I wouldn't expect you to. I just... <laughs> I, actually just skim read it over the weekend oh, did you? <laughs> just uh-huh. finished it so um so i have uh, i haven't been able to do a close reading of it but just um aware that it's it's a new book on faith i tried to get my hands yeah. on a copy to well, it's interesting because their method is very different from yours. Um, not that they don't look at related words like, you know, I mean, everything from obedience to, um, you know, the, they, they do look at the patho word group and, and stuff like that. But obviously they have a, a relevance theoretical framework and a, a monosemic bias, right, that they're bringing to their study saying that pistis has a certain core meaning and that that core meaning is more pragmatic usage as it gets mobilized. So it ends up with a, a yeah, they end up with a quite different reading, I think, of faith in Paul than you, um, at least. That was my sense. Like there's, there's at least some striking differences. So, yeah. Anyway, um, 
yeah, method always, it's interesting to kind of think about how all these things always tie together. Is Obviously, it's, it's intuitive that our method is going to um, drive our results, but uh, it certainly does. Um, now, I don't know uh, how often you listen to OnScript. Um, I, I think you, you said you listen occasionally at least, um, but um, you're probably aware that we do speed rounds. Um, <laughs> and uh, so are you ready for one? Want to do a speed round? Sure. All right. So the idea is I give you a, a question, um, probably mostly silly, some more serious, but you don't really defend your answer. You just you just tell us what you think very briefly. Okay. All right. So you ready? Do you have any secret or hidden talents? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it's secret depending on which context, right? Um, That's right. Well, you know, one's, one's a, your, your general adoring public of students, let's say, wouldn't know about you. <laughs> um, so I actually play the piano. Um, oh. I play the piano for my whole life. My mother was a piano teacher, so I just kind of oh. um, grew up with it. But a, a more silly talent that I have that not many people know is um, I can actually touch my elbows behind my back. Oh, I won't, I won't make you demonstrate. I'd be the only one who could see you. Difficult to demonstrate um, over the radio, but. <laughs> wow. I don't know what that, that means. Does it mean you're like people. double jointed in your shoulders or like, how does one do that? You know, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I didn't know it was odd until, um, my brother, when I was a child pointed out that that was strange that I could do that. And then since then I've, I think I've met one other person that can do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm certain. I'm quite certain I can. Okay. You ready for number two? Sure. Um, is steak the best food God created? Oh, I love steak. I it is, though. It. Yeah. It, it is the single best? Uh, gosh, that's hard. I mean, some of the, um, like, superfood fruits are pretty good, too. I love acai. But, I, I mean, if I, have to have, if I have to choose between acai and steak, I would probably choose steak. I don't even know what this thing is you just said. Oh. I have no idea what it is. Acai? Oh, it's I'm, a berry that grows in the Amazon. It's... Rich really? antioxidants. Wow. Okay, so I'm gonna try this stuff. If it's that good, you an acai bowl. It's really good. Okay, I'm, I'm there. I want to try that. All right. Uh, most important theology or biblical studies book of the last fifty years. Last fifty years, biblical studies or theology. I can't help but be partial to my own doctoral supervisor and say that Paul and the Gift is yeah. a very important work. That's that's the most common one we get these days. Yeah. So it is a very it's a, I, I would I would have it would be hard to refute. Um, it's it's certainly very very important. Okay. Um, what's something you find quite awkward? Awkward. Um. <laughs> not being able to answer questions. <laughs> when you're put on the spot and you don't know what to say, it's awkward. Not being able to Especially answer when it's, a question when it's being about what's the most awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, if you can't think of anything, you can keep thinking about awkward things. Okay. Um, but what's something about life as a scholar or professor that you know now that you wish you would have known 10 years ago? Hmm. So just under 10 years ago is when I, I was working on the master's and pursuing the idea of getting a Ph.D. And uh, oh, how naive I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I think I knew about just... Um, the intenseness of it, I think I've seen, um, you know, I'll admit that um, 10 years ago when I began it, I didn't know how difficult it was to, um, to land a job um, mm. in, um, in university. 
And so uh, I launched out into it and then started seeing how difficult it was <laughs> for people to actually end up with a job afterwards. So um, that's one thing I can think of. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful to be at Biola and um, love my, love teaching there. Well, it's a blessing to to have a job and to uh, get to spend a lifetime teaching and researching, and it certainly is a wonderful job. But yes, it is difficult to get a job these days, so it, it's true. Um, how about okay? Um, back into your book then, um, and here I, I'm going to probably press on the thing that probably there was something that I, uh, apart from some exegetical decisions that we're all going to disagree about, probably the thing that I was you know, kind of found myself most uncomfortable with in your project, um, and and this is just one entree point to it because it's a kind of a repeated claim, but um, that faith can be understood as active yet passively received, and um, the or ideas that especially the divine agency always precedes faith. Um, I've at least found myself troubled with this way of phrasing things, but there could be ways in which I um, I find it okay. Um, so what leads you to this conclusion, um, the idea that um, divine agency precedes faith or that faith should be understood as um, active yet always passively received or something along those lines. Um, we'll start with that. What leads you to this conclusion? Like maybe you could give a, a little bit of your evidence as you have number, a number of different things you go through there. And then maybe I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question that might uh, be a way that I, as I'm wrestling with it, ways that I'm kind of trying to think through it. Mm-hmm. So um, to the first question about the um – I, I'm active to, yet passively received. Yeah, active and passive. So um, I use the language of, um, I think, active um, active passivity, <laughs> in a sense, or maybe passive activity, um, in that using the language of receiving, which is another one of those kind of um, conceptual cognates that I uh, address. Uh, receiving is a unique um, activity in that it does involve both um an activity on the person, um, I choose either to receive or to reject the gift. Um, but it's passive in the sense that it is dependent upon the prior action of the giver. Um, and so, um, so I, I guess I'm, tr- I'm seeking to show that there, um, I, one thread that's consistent throughout the work is that faith is an active and ongoing uh, phenomenon. And that's something that I, I hoped to make abundantly clear that it's not a, a you know, past activity, um, just an, or a one-time activity, um, that I received the gospel by faith and, and therefore I'm saved. No, faith is an ongoing mode of existence. Um, but the, um, I guess my attempt to address both of those aspects of it, both active and passive, is uh, in part uh, an attempt to alleviate concerns of scholars who also fear that then faith becomes a form of human achievement. Mm-hmm. So um, that really comes out, I think, in, um, again, the apocalyptic interpreters um, come to mind, primarily uh, J. Louis Martin, Martin DeBoer. So they're really mm-hmm. nervous about seeing faith as, as something that's independent of the work of God, the grace of God. And so uh, I think it uh, also comes out of receiving um, John Barclay's work, too, uh, in talking about the priority of, of grace um, preceding um preceding the the act of faith 
and even enabling or eliciting faith in, in the believers. Mm-hmm. So it does come out of a strong sense of that, um, yeah, that, that yeah. priority of grace. Um, yeah, that's helpful. Um, and I think that maybe toward the end, like you both touched on, like the solution, at least as I see it, or at least, I don't know, one possible solution and also the problem was sort of the language of um, – of eliciting would be the part that I see as problematic. But on the other hand, the idea of, of there being a prior act of grace is very clear, right? So that we would want to talk about there being like, can, can we, can we separate out, I guess the question would be the, um, can we separate out priority and causality, right? As there were places where I felt like you were arguing that, that you were sliding those things together too quickly was maybe my concern that like, because it's prior, it is therefore causal. So God's prior action causes our faith in some way or elicits it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, certainly another way of putting that together would be to say like, well, God's prior action is a historical action, right? It's a, it's, it's the gift of the Christ event itself, right? And that the human response to that is faith. Um, and that we wouldn't necessarily see that, that human response necessarily as being divinely elicited always or not as clearly. So that would be maybe the, the part where I was rubbing against it was saying uh, or against the language of active pass- passivity, right? On the one hand, we could say that like, yeah, we're passive in the sense that God gave us the gospel, mm-hmm. right? That um, that act of grace um, is something that God gave. But to go further and to say that um, that we have a causal relationship between God's prior action always with regard to our faith, well, it, it kind of gets us into grounds, like sort of big questions about God's providence, right, That sure. our, and, and human and divine agency and how they fit together that that I'm struggling with, too, and trying to, mm-hmm. to, trying to work all that out, right? And, um, yeah, does, does that help clarify, like, the, the, I guess the, the part where I was a bit uncomfortable? And, um, yeah, I, what – you can react to any of that. I can, I guess. Yeah, I can. I can sense that um, that kind of angst about that, and I don't. I don't recall using language of causality precisely. I do use the word elicit, um, and I think that there's. Um, I think there's evidence scripture about the the role of the Holy Spirit in um, in eliciting faith. I think we can, you know, look at Galatians three as an example of the, this. Um, you know, it, in in my chapter on Galatians three, I talk about kind of a reciprocal relationship between the spirit and and faith because I too have a difficult time. Yeah, I could I could uh, sense that as you were uh, in that uh, section in particular. Yeah, but. yeah, it's difficult to, to to really parse out, you know, um, a precise order. <laughs> oh, for um, sure, for sure. So, I mean, these are the great know, mysteries. You know, it, my intention is not to get into kind of this this Calvinist. Um, uh, doctrine of, of predestination per se, but um, all of that is challenging because I see I, I see that I see that uh, I see election um, in Paul's writings, but I see uh, at the same time exhortation after exhortation about remaining in the faith. And so, um, so there's some kind of interplay there. Yeah. Well, that was, again, that was like a, 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 one of the big questions that I had is like, one of the things I think you, like you rightly said, you're very firm on is that faith is not like a one-time decision that it's like an ongoing mode of existence or mode of being in Christ or use that kind of language as an ongoing relationship. Um, and, and, but then you also wanted to kind of preserve divine initiative. Uh, it seemed like very carefully in, in how you talk about faith, but then on the other hand, you say, well, faith waxes and wanes, like faith could be, um, you know, our potential faith could be in vain. Um, 
like, how does that interface with the idea of God's agency? If my faith ends up like waning, did God cause that? Yeah. Like we, we end up with those <laughs> kinds of, like, you see what I mean? Like we end up with those kinds of difficult yeah. questions. If my faith grows, like we probably like, yeah, God did that. Yeah. Um, but if my faith, if my faith wanes, like, is that God's initiative too? That would be like part of the tension, right? In this, in this, in this um, conversation that I, that I feel at least is I'm trying to sort out divine agency, human agency, faith, salvation, how it all works. I struggle. With that. For sure. It uh, as as we all do. I hope we all can admit that this is. I you know, um, this is one of those antinomies. I believe that somehow we see see both at, at work here. You know, I I, I yeah. can't get apart. You know, I I do have kind of more um, Reformation theology leanings, and so um, I can't get away from um, I can't get away from the doctrine of election entirely. But I also don't hold my bearings so strongly in that, that I can't accept human responsibility for, you know, and, and that's, I, that was really the heartbeat of this book that was, um, because to kind of combine academic and personal concerns, I wanted to write something that would, um, help disciples of Christ that would help, um, that wouldn't just be a, an academic work that sits on a shelf, but something that could equip me to better in my own discipleship to Christ and, and others as well. So, um, there's that, uh, clarion call, I think to really be, um, be mindful of our faith, to take those exhortations strongly to, to, to ask, are we still <laughs> in the faith today? Is my faith, um, growing or waning, uh, in what ways am I, um, participating in the dynamic of, um, the Christ event today. Um, so I, so I do have all of those concerns, but yeah, um, I parsing it out very specifically is, is challenging to me, which is why I, I, I see it as a, a theological underpinning or a grounding to the work that it needs to be emphasized, um, that, um, that God's grace is always prior um, and to to make sure that faith is not misunderstood as human achievement, because I think I think when we start, you know, there, there's got to be that tension. Otherwise, faith does become just sure. another human work. You know, it's just yeah. uh, and so, so that's why holding those two together is important to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think as I've been wrestling with this, obviously, like allegiance languages are the language I've been preferring, um, partly because it, it does not invest ourselves into that idea of um, of it being some sort of achievement. Right. Yeah. Being allegiant to Jesus isn't an achievement. Right. It's a mm -hmm. it's a relational term that involves like if we kind of think about faith and faithfulness um, together or trust and loyalty together. It emphasizes more of the loyalty side of the spectrum without denying cognitive or, um, you know, um, confidence kinds of portions of the word group too. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I, yeah, I'm, I'm wrestling with it as well. I'm going to switch it up just a little bit on you and ask, a, it's a question still very much about your book and about faith, but this is more like, again, a, a, something I, that you did that I found helpful. And so I, you know, I just, part of my questions are just derived from what I find interesting and helpful in your work. Uh, but this is on your page 49 and 50, and it had um, to do with your discussion of symbolic capital and faith as symbolic capital. And I just thought that was helpful to me. Um, so I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity to share 
um, something about that with other people. What do we mean when we say that faith is a symbolic capital? And this is really kind of a sociological model you're applying to the Pauline corpus. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it helpful to us? I thought it was helpful. Um, yeah, this, so this um, derives from uh, French social anthropologist Pierre I'm going to butcher his last name because my French is not so great, but Bordeaux. Um, and he, um, so I just saw this as, as really closely parallel with um, what Paul's doing, especially in, I think, the Corinthian letters, with, especially with this language of boasting. So um, so the the idea is simply like what an individual or community deems to have worth or value is not solely determined from a financial perspective. Um, so instead of just, you know, economic capital, um, we have forms of worth that are symbolic. Um, and for the Corinthian correspondence, this is, you know, um, being wise, um, you know, speaking with, uh, eloquent rhetoric, um, being of nobility and things of that nature. And so, uh, Paul's, Paul really takes all of that and wants to turn everything on its head. And again, taking that symbol of the cross, which uh, in in the context and, you know, the, the Greco-Roman context would have been a symbol of shame, um, crucifixion being reserved for um, non-citizens, criminals, and the, the lowest of the low among society. Um, but to, for Paul to say, I boast only in the cross of Christ is like a, an affront to everything that um, the Corinthians would have thought <laughs> had worth. And so, um, so it's a reorienting of values and yeah. a reorienting of, of what, uh, what one finds one's worth in. And that's why, you know, I think identity, um, is, is so closely wrapped up in, in what Paul means by faith. Faith actually means I become reconstituted as a, as a new, person with new forms of worth and all of that is summed up in Christ. That's, that's participation, right? That's a participation language. And so, um, that's, uh, really, I guess in, in summary, what I was aiming to get out there. Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. I think, you know, if we use an analogy, that's a non-financial one in our world, there can be subcultures. Like, let's say it's a skateboarding subculture. I know nothing about skateboarding subculture, so I'm probably going to get this wrong. But, <laughs> you know, within that, like, maybe they really value wearing Converse tennis shoes, you know, because those are the best for skateboarding. But in the eyes of the world, those shoes aren't worthless. You know, or, or, you know not of any more value than New Balance or Nike or mm-hmm. whatever, you know. But um, if you then were to show up, you know, amongst all the other skateboarding, skateboarders are wearing their Converse, you know, their, their Converse tennis shoes wearing military boots, they'd be like, what? Like, you don't belong to our group. Like you're mm-hmm. subverting our values in some way, or you're, 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 you're out of joint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there's, there's no symbolic capital to those boots in that kind mm-hmm. of society. Like you got to wear the right kind of thing. And, uh, so there are cool things in the Corinthian world, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly not Christ crucified. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, as, uh, Paul, um, wants to say, that's, that's the only thing that has any value to you with a, as, as a Christian it can only be, um, the King and the king uh, who was suspended on the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's powerful stuff. And I thought it was helpful for thinking about um, faith and what, wh- why, why is faith, why is faith uniquely a value, mm-hmm. right? I think that's one of the questions that, that is interesting to kind of think about. Like why, why not hope? Like why is it that faith is the thing that Paul says is uniquely effective for our salvation? Um, 
well, uh, what is it that makes it distinct? Um, and, and so I think that um, why, why does it have the, the social capital with God uh, and that alone? Um, well, it seems to, it seems to connect, um, as you do, to, to kind of revoking other kinds of attachments and to giving an exclusive kind of loyalty um, or faith in Christ or an elevation of the Christ relation. Yeah, and if I could interject too, just I think I think that's really important. Like you said, you've got various like shiftings of positive associations or positives, you know, identifications of things that bring worth to me, which is such a huge issue in our culture, right? In every culture uh, ever existed. <laughs> um, yeah. But one uh, one thing too that's important to highlight in this is that it's not just a replacement of positive um, social norms and systems of worth um, symbolic capital but even um even the taking on of various negative uh experiences as a result of being a christian and um i, I write about this also in the context of uh first thessalonians and i think this is such an interesting letter because here paul um paul actually uses pistis in the most concentrated way in this letter um he writes about how he's concerned about their faith and wanted to know about, um, you know, at the beginning of the letter, he's thankful that their faith has, you know, resounded into all the surrounding mm-hmm. regions that it's their faith that's being heard about. Well, that faith must have entailed activity. For that's right. Yeah. But, but also he's concerned, uh, chapter three talks about how he's concerned, like, ha- are they remaining in the faith? Are they growing in the faith or have, um, has their faith been disturbed is the word that he uses. And, um, in the context there is that there's a lot of, um, social dislocation, you know, in the, in the context of, uh, a pagan culture, you know, these new believers are having to, uh, reject, um, their, their families, pagan religions. And, and so they're resulting in, you know, social harassment of various forms, maybe even physical persecution. We know that the early church experienced a lot of that. We know that the um, church today in many parts of the world experience um, uh, deep levels of persecution. And so so that social capital also embraces um, negative consequences as a result of not mm. associating with Christ. Yeah, no, that's very well put. And because, yeah, thank of, you. Because, because I am Christ, because Christ is worth everything to me, um, I can endure such things. Thank you. Um, let's do another speed round. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to squeeze it in. And then we're actually, time is flying along, so we'll probably just have one or two wrap-up questions after that. But the speed rounds are so fun, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't help myself. All right, so we're just coming off of our Christmas breaks as professors. Um, what was the best thing about Christmas break for you? Being with family, just having time to... Um, relax at home. And this was a unique uh, Christmas for me because our Christmas breaks just recently were shortened. We used to have a little bit longer. And so typically I'm finishing my grading all the way through (laughs) Christmas and into the new year. And then beginning my course preps, we start back a week from today. Um, But I I had been actually on a research leave. So it was really nice to um, not have grading to do. And to really um, be able to uh, unwind and just spend some quality time with family. Great. Is there intelligent alien life elsewhere in the universe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm inclined to think no, but who knows? <laughs> okay. Maybe not, maybe. 
Um, okay, you're coming to my house for a barbecue, and you opt to bring something as a gift to contribute. What are you going to bring? And by the way, I, I, I'm asking you this partly because I asked this to John Barclay. This was one of the questions I asked him. <laughs> so I'm going to see if you're going to bring the same thing he is. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I actually listened to that episode. and I Oh, you did? Um, we don't have a local farm to <laughs> uh, yeah. bring some delicious. He said he was, was going to bring me Pinot Noir, I remember, yeah. also. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, some locally sourced, like some... Yeah, something to eat, locally sourced burger or something. I don't remember, right? But yeah. I would probably want to bring something homemade. Um, so, what about those berries you just mentioned? Can, Aren't you gonna I bring, bring me some a- acai, and I can make you an acai bowl. That could be our dessert. So, I've never done that before. I never brought it to someone else's house, but we could do that. Um, or just I've I've been making cheesecakes for the for Thanksgiving and um, Christmas holidays. A, a homemade pumpkin cheesecake that seemed to be a, a hit but depending on if it's like springtime that's not really a, a good dessert so maybe maybe i'll bring the acai to you okay um, all right well, i'll make you the steaks since yeah. i know that's your favorite yeah <laughs> all right roller coasters yes or no oh i love roller coasters all right react to this word so like how does this make you feel that's just the question um snowflake uh happy jittery cheerful happy you like you like snow. I do, and you don't, and you don't have any of the negative connotations like person's a snowflake, or that sometimes like oh. <laughs> you, no, didn't, you didn't no. go that way with it at all. Okay, um, <laughs> all right. Give me a book or author outside of Bible or theology that you like, uh, or that you've read read recently, or whatever you want. Book outside of Bible and theology, or author. My so my favorite two all time novels: um, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, and um, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo. Oh, those are both really good. Now, have you read The Brothers K by James, um, what's his name, James Duncan? James something Duncan. Um, it's like a modern take on The Brothers Karamazov. No. Uh, it's really good. David oh. James Duncan, I think that's his name, if I remember right. right. I, I read it years ago, but it was like, well, anyway, I won't get into it. This is your interview, not mine. Okay, um, <laughs> let's... Uh, that's the end of the speeder. I don't have any more of those. So, um, we should, we should probably bring, um, bring this together a bit. And, and, um, one of the things to kind of think through, um, I guess about your project is obviously faith as participation, Galatians two twenty, a really critical verse for you. But, um, if a pastor was to, you know, be preaching, um, a sermon based on your book or to uh, be doing something along those lines, what are you hoping, uh, the pastor's going to emphasize. Um, what are some of the things you're hoping you're going to hear if they've read your book? So, um, I think primarily understanding faith as the primary believer act. Um, mm. Faith is uh, is the believer act from which all Christian activity flows. So we have such confusion over relationship between faith and works, I think. Um, but if we can understand that faith is really that posture of dependence on God and participation in Christ, um, from which good works flow, I think it alleviates, um, pressure believers feel in, in many ways. Um, and, uh, it, I think it, speaks to the freedom uh, that that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. Um, so so understanding um, yeah faith as active um, faith as um, 
and faith as as participatory and um, faith as a sharing in that dynamic of, of Christ's um, death and resurrection. Um, that would be, I think, chief. So, you know, I think we have too many people who, too many people in our churches who understand faith as simply, a, you know, I prayed a prayer and uh, I believed certain things to be true. And mm. that's foundational to, you know, prayer and understanding rightly, um, cognitively what what we are believing and what our, what is our creed. Um, we have to get that right. Um, so that's yeah. a part of it, but not uh, the extent of it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's very well put. Well, I think we need to sign off. So it's been so wonderful to have you. I really appreciated the conversation and I enjoyed getting to read your book. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Our guest today has been Jeanette Hagen Pfeiffer, author of Faith as Participation. Uh, it's out with Moore Zebeck in their Wundt series, 2019. It's a stimulating and worthwhile study. There are links to the book on our website onscript.study. Thanks again for the conversation and thanks again to all our listeners. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.